Well, good morning, church family. My name is David, and a warm welcome to you on this third Sunday with snow and ice. And just a good reminder, just like as the snow and the ice, they melt and they go away, uh, these are not easy days to, to navigate. And uh, I am just incredibly grateful to our staff uh, to the volunteers, to all of you who just continue to remain uh, flexible and committed in this season. Uh, kids, we see you guys as well, too. Just like the snow melts, the pandemic will end at some point, and school and birthday parties and things like that uh, will we'll come back again. Hang in there. Uh, we, we see you. Uh, we are continuing uh, in our sermon series on Acts, the title of which is called Unwavering. And we've been looking at God's purposes uh, for his people, for us, and his goodness uh, to us. Uh, this week, we're coming to chapter 10 and chapter 11. Now, there's 77 verses in these two chapters, so we've got a lot of work to do. This is the longest narrative in the book of Acts, and so that should signal to us that this is really important to Luke. And what we're going to be looking at today is we're going to be considering the early church as it encounters cultural and ethnic prejudices, barriers, and divisions, and what God has to say about that to us as Christians. We're talking about the gospel and the church being for all people groups. Now, if you've been coming to the Capitol Prez family for many weeks or many years, uh, you're probably used to us trying to make it uh, really clear in the beginning why you should pay attention to what we're about to say. And we usually try to do that in the first couple of minutes. But today, my sense is that simply highlighting this passage, that it speaks about breaking down ethnic divides, that grace is meant for every nationality, that who God is and what he says dictates how we view and treat people, specifically when it comes to those who are culturally or ethnically different than us, that will provide more than enough reason for all of us to pay attention this morning. Here as a church in America on the outskirts of D.C. in 2021, I think that we desperately need God to speak around these issues. Now, we are going to approach this a little bit differently this week. So I know that that's about the worst words that you can say to a Presbyterian, uh, but hang on, we're doing something different. It's still a three-point sermon, so deep breath, but all of point one, wait for it, it's going to be before we read the sermon text, okay? So I'm going to preach a little bit, and then I'm going to read the scripture, and then we're going to have two points, okay? And I'm trusting that the Spirit will encourage us and compel us all in the gospel towards the grace-filled cross-cultural community that it produces. So let's pray, and then let's go to work. Dear Heavenly Father, we do ask that as we come to your holy word, that you would help all of us to hear your voice and to respond as we worship our way through this text, especially the one who is preaching. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's our roadmap, right? First, we're going to look at the context of Acts. We're going to look at God's unfolding plan in the story of Acts. Then we're going to look at the content of Acts chapter 10 and 11, looking at the vision and the message that's contained in these two chapters. And then finally, we're going to ask, so what? We're going to look at the consequences. What does all this mean for us? So first up, the context, the unfolding plan of God in Acts. 
Now, we're going to be looking at chapter 10 and chapter 11, but let's just zoom out for just a moment and say, what in the world is the book of Acts about? Well, if you remember back, if you look back in chapter 1 at verse 8, that's as close as we have to an outline or a blueprint of what happens in the story of Acts. And if you look back there, you would read this, but you, talking to the apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and listen to this, and you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then if you remember, we've covered that so far. We looked at Acts chapter 1 through 4, and we saw that they were witnesses. We saw the gospel come to Jerusalem. We see that there were conversions, and God added to their number daily. So that's happening in chapters 1 through 4. And then in chapter 5, persecution breaks out. The apostles are put in prison. And then we read about the first Christian martyr, Stephen, in chapter 7. And then we hear that much of the church is pushed out of Jerusalem. Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, They were all scattered throughout where? The regions of Judea and Samaria. Okay, do you hear the echo of Acts 1-8 about how that's happening? Okay, then we read in chapter 8, we're told that the Samaritans, who are an ethnically mixed group of outcasts that were partly Jewish and Gentile. Now, what's a Gentile? The way that we're using that in biblical terms just means non-Jewish. But in chapter 8, we see these Samaritans believe in Christ and a gospel movement breaks out in Samaria. Well, then after that, in chapter 8, we hear about the conversion of an Ethiopian, a black African royal official who converts to Christ. Then last week, we looked at chapter 9, where we saw the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, the terrorist who comes to Christ. It's almost like it's happening, what Jesus said would happen in Acts 1.8. We see the gospel coming to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it's not like it's just happening in Acts. We, we go back and Jesus said, this is what will happen and this is what you are to be about, church, in Matthew 28. Take the gospel to the entire world. But it didn't just start there, right? If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, if you go back to the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden, we see that God's plan was for his glory to go throughout the entire earth. And we can trace that throughout the Old Testament. When God made a promise to Abraham, he said, I am blessing you. Why? So that you will be a blessing to the nations. If you look at all these different places in the Old Testament about God's temple, it's called a house of prayer for all nations. And kids, who could forget the story of Jonah, right? One of the coolest stories in the Old Testament. And do you remember that Jonah was being sent to the nations? And every week, we usually have a call to worship from Psalms, and there's a phrase, there's a refrain in the Psalms that usually say something like, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. And that's what we're seeing happen in the book of Acts. Jewish believers 
Samaritans, Africans, and then here we come to Acts 10 and 11 today. And it tells a story about two men, Peter and Cornelius. You probably already know a lot about Peter. He's the Jewish leader in the early church with a disposition not to be associated and not to consider others as equal to Jews in God's kingdom. Now, Cornelius, we're going to learn more about him as we go through this. He's a Roman centurion. He's a Roman soldier. He's an officer in the Roman legion. He's at the backbone of the Roman empire that is ruling over the Jews. And in God's unfolding plan, the lives of these two men are about to collide. And grace is going to change them and change everything. And that should give us great hope. There you go. That's point one before we read the scripture. It wasn't even too long, was it? Now, here's what you need to know about Acts 10 and 11. This story, again, is so important. It's the longest narrative in Acts. But the same story is basically told twice. In Acts chapter 10, we hear it in the words of Luke. And then in Acts chapter 11, we basically hear the same story retold in Peter's own words. And that's what we're going to read, Acts 11, 1 through 18. So listen up. This is Acts 11, 1 through 18. And heads up, even though we went a little out of order, we're still going to do, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, after this, all right? Just letting you know, all right? Acts 11, 1 through 18. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the spirit told me to go with them making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, 
they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, now we get to point two, the content. And let's worship our way through this chapter as Peter recounts the vision and the message from God. So apparently news had traveled fast that the Gentiles had received the word of God. In a day with no social media, don't know how it happened, but apparently it did. And so in 11, chapter 11, verse 1, the Jerusalem church, capital Pres Jerusalem, I'm just kidding, that they had some understandable questions that Peter answered for them. Now, just one little side note here. Most likely, the Jerusalem church is not upset that they had become followers of Jesus. But what is new is that these Gentile converts don't need to become Jews. Okay, more on that in a minute. So when Peter shows up and they say, hey, what's going on? Peter begins with his own experience, and he says, listen, I was in Joppa. Remember that? Coastal town, you know, in the story of Jonah. And he says, I'm praying on the top of the roof. I'm waiting on this kosher lunch. And then, boom, there's a vision from God. And in this vision, basically, he sees this picnic blanket coming down from heaven, and a voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And three times, Peter says in verse 8, by no means, Lord, I'm not going to eat this. You know, we got to love Peter, right? Peter's not like, hey, can we talk about this? Hey, I've got a few questions. He's just like, by no means. And he's so argumentative and he's so combative. He actually says this three times. And so in all told, God has to tell him six times directly, no, Peter, I'm serious. You need to eat this food. (laughs) Now, what's going on here? Well, God is using food as an object lesson for Peter's heart. That what God has called clean, Peter must not call unclean. Not talking about food, but people. People. Okay? So you'll remember, Peter was a Jew, and he was a good Jew. So he knew his Sunday school lessons. He knew that Abraham was blessed in order to be a blessing, that God's plan was to include all nations. But here's what Peter had misunderstood. He had misunderstood that what would come about, he assumed that Gentiles would have to assimilate to Jewish culture first. And the Lord was showing him that these dietary laws that are contained in Leviticus 11 weren't about teaching God's people to be picky eaters, but they were something about being set apart. That as they ate differently, they believed differently, and they lived differently because of their covenant relationship to the Lord. But these dietary laws, they were temporarily meant to teach them about spiritual uncleanness, that because of their unclean hearts, they needed a savior. These dietary laws in the Old Testament 
were to be an illustration to teach them about their own unclean hearts that they needed to be cleaned, that they needed to be purified, that they needed a Savior. But their hearts were like our hearts, and so they responded with religious self-righteousness, beginning to think that they were made clean by outward obedience. So in this vision, when Jesus said to eat, he was signaling to Peter that the temporary object lesson with food was up. The Savior had come. Jesus had come. And he had come to make people from every nation, tribe, and tongue clean. Here's the point of the vision of God that Peter received, that people of all nations, ethnic and cultural backgrounds, are welcomed into his family without distinction. That people of all nations, ethnic and cultural backgrounds are welcomed into his family without distinction. And to be clear, this vision of revelation, this was unique in redemptive history. Okay? But, but some of you still might be skeptical. How do you know he's talking about people, not food? Well, right after their chat, this divine conversation, in verse 11, there's a knock on his door. And when he goes down and opens the door, we're told that there are three Gentiles at his house. And these three men let him know that they've been sent by a Roman centurion named Cornelius from Caesarea and that he's supposed to go back with them so that he can talk to him. And then we're also told that the Spirit let Peter know that these guys were coming and that he should go with them. This blows my mind because in two separate locations, God is speaking to Cornelius the day before, and then he's talking to Peter, and he's bringing them together separately, but also together he's working in two lives. So Peter gets this message. And then if you look up Google Maps, it's about a 12.5-hour walk from uh, Joppa to Caesarea. And so Peter points to six guys and says, hey, you're going with me. Now, that's a weird detail, but that detail is included because he needed those witnesses to serve as witnesses that this actually happened, that something is about to go down. All right. So in chapter 10, if we look back there in the first few verses in one through eight, you'd read a little bit more about Cornelius. You'd hear that he's an important dude. He commands uh, this group of the Italian cohort in verse one. We'd read that he was also very religious. He was devout and he was a good man. He was generous but think about this, okay? Even though he was a religious person, a good person, he was not a redeemed person. He was not a new person. He was still in need of grace. More on this in a minute. So Peter shows up in verse 15. Uh, he preaches this grace-filled message, which we have in chapter 10, verses 34 through 43. And in that section, when Peter shows up to talk to Cornelius, he explains that he now understands that God shows no partiality and that everyone who believes in Jesus will receive forgiveness of their sins in his name. 
That sounds something like the passing of the peace, doesn't it? (laughs) Something that we do every, every week, that because of Jesus, there is now peace or there's reconciliation between man and God, between humans and God, and also between humans. And then after Peter preaches this message, God pours out his spirit and they believe what some have called, this looks like the Gentile Pentecost. We've had the Jewish Pentecost. We've had the Samaritan Pentecost. Now we're having the Gentile Pentecost. And Peter recognizes this because John the Baptist had talked about it. He says, oh yeah, God is up to something. We need to baptize them. So they baptized them. And then I love that description at the end of, of uh, the section that we read today. They are in stunned silence. And then they burst forth in glorifying God. Now, the point of the message of God is that Gentiles did not need to become cultural Jews to be Jesus followers. Did you hear that? The Gentiles didn't need to become cultural Jews to be Jesus followers. It wasn't about food. It wasn't about education. It wasn't about politics. It wasn't about customs. It was about grace. That's the vision and the message of chapter 10 and 11. But now we need to ask, so what? What does all this vision and message from God mean for us today in the Capitol Press family in D.C. in 2021? Let's key in on two consequences that flow from two conversions in this passage. All right? I've already made the Presbyterians nervous by breaking the normal order of things. Now I've made the Presbyterians nervous talking about two conversions. Don't worry. Stay with me, all right? Conversion number one. Now, I am convinced that our church, our city, and our nation, honestly, we need a clear picture of what a Christian is and what a Christian isn't. And that's why one of the reasons we've been going through the book of Acts, we need to understand what makes someone a Christian and what a church is actually supposed to be about. Answer that question in your own mind or answer that question. What do you think your neighbors or your coworkers, or your friends would say if you just asked them, what does it mean to be a Christian? How do you become a Christian? I'm willing to bet you, and I'm sure I would be wrong in, in some interactions, but I'm willing to bet that you will get all kinds of answers and almost none of them will mention grace. Almost none of them will mention grace. You see, in this passage, if we look at Cornelius, he was someone who was converted. And if you look back at chapter 10, he was a good person. Cornelius was a good person. He was religious. He feared God. He gave generously to the poor. He did all of these good things, but he had not yet fully grasped the grace of God. He needed to hear the good news of the gospel preached to him by Peter. And that's what he did in chapter 10, verses 39 through 40 and 43. Peter says they put him, Jesus, to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear 
To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Friends, hear this. We can do all the outward actions of being a Christian. We can have a quiet time. We can contribute a pack and play. We can even fear God, but not fully grasp the grace of God. A Christian is someone who is changed by Jesus from the inside out. It's someone who repents not only of their badness, but of their goodness and believe in Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. We are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. We are not saved by our outward obedience, but our outward obedience flows from our inward transformation. That's conversion number one. But I also said there's a second conversion. Some of you are getting nervous, Presbyterians, hearing me talk about a second conversion, but let me tell you what I mean. Uh, some of you will know the, the name of this British pastor, John Stott. We've used his commentary a lot in this sermon series. And when he's writing about chapter 10 and 11, he says this. He says, the principal subject of this chapter is not so much the conversion of Cornelius, which we just talked about, but of the conversion of Peter. Wait, what? The conversion of Peter... Peter was already a Jesus-following apostle who boldly preached the gospel even to Cornelius. So what's he talking about? Well, the conversion that Stott is talking about is that Peter had not fully grasped the mission of God, the mission of God, until he had a cross-cultural conversion when his heart was opened to others. Now let's camp there. For a moment. Church, we need to ask some questions. We need to ask some questions like these. Can I point to a time in my own life where I've come to the same understanding of the heart of God for the nations and his cross-cultural mission? You know, I think it's Stott who's, who's written about this in another place. I'll have to look it back up. And yes, there's one conversion where we become saved, but he's also talked about where we're converted to a love for the church, and then we're also converted to the nations. And that is what Peter is experiencing here. Let's ask some more questions here. Have any of us confused our cultural identities with Christianities? Have I confused my political or national identity with Christianity? Have I ever put someone outside of Christianity based purely on their cultural or ethnic identity? This, this chapter is also about partiality. Do I show partiality, positively or negatively, to people based on their wealth, whether they have a lot of money or a little bit of money? Do I make judgments about them? Do I uh, show partiality based on the color of someone's skin or their accents? 
What about uh, even just their physical appearance, whether attractive or unattractive? Do I show partiality to someone based on their political party? Friends, this is not easy, but we need to probe our preferences. We need to ask, what are some of our intentional and unintentional practices, customs, and programs that aren't bad, but that might accidentally or purposely show partiality to some certain cultures and ethnicities and unknowingly exclude others? If some of you want to check this out a little bit more, I would encourage you to look in a book called The Beautiful Community by Dr. Erwin Entz. He's a pastor in our denomination. He preached here uh, a few months ago. And he's got a great chapter in his book. I believe it's chapter 9 on probing preferences. Now, there's so much more we could say on this, but let me just tell you this. This is something that our denomination, the PCA, and our church has been intentionally pursuing for many years, and we remain wholly dissatisfied and relentlessly optimistic. Uh, One of the things that our session has continued to do is last November, uh, we put together a diverse working committee made up of men and women in leadership, including persons of color, to help our church think about this, to assess ongoing cross-cultural hospitality in our church and reconciliation, to, to recommend things that we can do in line with this PCA study committee, to prepare discipleship on this topic for a biblical understanding of this, to identify helpful resources, and to pray for this important work of reconciliation and cross-cultural ministry in our Capital Prez family. And there's more to come on this, and so stay tuned. Well, we're at about the end of our time. Let me just close with one final verse. It's in chapter 11, and we didn't read it, but let me call your attention to it, and I'll read it now. In chapter 11, verse 26, it says this, And when he had found him, him being Saul, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is the first time that they were called Christians in Antioch. Prior to this, they were called like the followers of the way or believers in Jesus. But now for the first time, they are called Christians. Why do you think that happened? Well, it happened because there was no category for this movement in Antioch. This movement in Antioch, Antioch was a metropolitan city with an international flavor. And so people of all nations, including Jews, Greeks, Persians, Asians, and Africans with different educational backgrounds, socioeconomic status, and political parties are believing and following Jesus and coming together in this thing called church. And there wasn't a label because these Christians were a new group of people that found their primary identity in Christ while also recognizing and enjoying their beautiful cross-cultural community. Friends, the gospel, Jesus, gives us all the resources to do this, unlike anybody else. 
Think about the reconciliation between God and humans. Jesus crossed from heaven to earth to reach us so we can cross our cultural preferences to reach others as well. I love the way one retired pastor, Ray Ortland, put it recently. He said, where can the glory of God be seen in the world today? A lovely sunset, the Grand Canyon? Yes, but there is a more human way. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's Romans 15, 7, if you didn't recognize it. Our prayer is that people in Virginia, D.C., and Maryland, when they come across our family of faith, the Capitol Pres family, whether we are gathered or scattered, that they would say, yeah, I can't really figure out what's going on there. They seem to be made up of people from all walks of life, but they're all really in to this Jesus guy. <laughs> this passage teaches us that because the gospel is for all nations and ethnicities, we can and should be a church of all nations and ethnicities. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a beautiful picture and an amazing story of the way that your gospel was playing out in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Father, you have been doing this since the beginning of time. And so, Father, we celebrate that you're doing that even now in our midst, and we want more. We want more, Lord. We want more people to know you, to experience grace, and to worship you. And we want that because you don't deserve anything less than for every tongue to praise you. So, Father, use us, use us as your servants so that we might be faithful to the mission that you have given us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.